we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of Urgency of Change. Each weekly episode in this season of the Krishnamurti podcast is based on a major theme of the philosopher's talks, such as freedom, self-knowledge, beauty, intelligence and meditation. Extracts from our archives have been carefully selected to represent Krishnamurti's different approaches to each of these universal and timelessly relevant themes. This week's theme is Nature and the Environment. Upcoming themes are Negation, Knowledge and Analysis. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. For more information about our activities and programmes, such as our volunteer programme at Brockwood Park in the UK, we are online at kfoundation.org. You can also find our daily quotes and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. This week's podcast has seven sections. The first extract is from Krishnamurti's fourth talk in Madras, 1979, titled If One Loses Contact with Nature. When one looks at one's own life, with all its extraordinary beauty, the vastness of what man has achieved technologically, and one wonders why there has been so little beauty in our life. I mean by that word, not mere the appearance of beauty, the decoration of the outer, but that quality of great communication with nature. If one loses contact with nature, one loses relationship with other human beings. You may read poems, if you are so inclined. You may read all the beautiful sonnets and the lyrical lyrical swing of a lovely poem. But imagination is not beauty. The appreciation of a cloud and the love of light in that cloud and the a sheet of water along a dry road. or a bird perched on a single branch. All that enchantment we rarely see or appreciate or love, because we are occupied with our own problems with our own worries, with our peculiar ideas and fixations. We're never free 
and beauty is this quality of freedom, which is totally different from independence. When you listen to all this, I wonder what you make of it. Whether we see a dog and love the dog, or a rock, or a stray cloud passing by, when we haven't that sense of extraordinary communication with, with the world, which brings about great beauty, we become small human beings, mediocre, wasting our extraordinary life and losing all the beauty and the depth of existence. But I'm afraid we must get back to realities, though that is also real, extraordinary real, the branch, the shadow, the light on a leaf, the fluttering parrot, that is also actual, real. And when we understand the swaying palm tree and the whole feeling of life, then there is great sense of depth to beauty. But we are not interested in all that, are you? I'm afraid we aren't. We will listen, let it slip by. It may sound romantic, sentimental, but beauty is not romantic, nor sentimental, nor emotional. It is something very, very solid, like a rock in the midst of a fast-flowing stream. The second extract is from the second question-and-answer meeting at Brookwood Park in 1980, titled We Are the Greatest Danger to the World. Why is it that in the balance of nature there is always death and suffering? Why is it man has killed 50 million whales Fifty million, you understand? And still, Russia and Japan are killing whales. They are killing every kind of species, man. The tigers are coming to an end, the cheetahs, the leopards, and the elephants for their tusk, for their flesh, and all that. Is not man much more dangerous animal than the rest of the animals? And you want to know why in nature there is death and suffering. You see a tiger killing a cow or a deer. That's their natural way of life. But the moment we interfere with it, it becomes real cruelty. You've seen, I'm quite sure, 
baby seals being knocked on the head. And then when there is a great protest against it, the union say that we have to live that way. You know the you know all this. So where shall we start to understand this the world about us and the world within us? The world within us is so enormously complex. But we want to understand the world of nature first, or that becomes our mania. Perhaps if we could start with ourselves. Not to hurt, not to be violent, not to be nationalistic, but to feel for the whole of mankind. Then perhaps we should have a proper relationship between ourselves and nature. Now we are destroying the earth, the air, the sea, the things of the sea. Because we are the greatest danger to the world. With our atomic bombs, you know, that's what's happening. The third extract is from Krishnamurti's second question and answer meeting in Ojai, 1985 titled, Are We Struggling Against Our Nature in Seeking to Change? The whole world of nature is a competition to survive. Is it not innate in in humans to struggle for the same reason? Are we not struggling against our basic nature in seeking change? Don't change. It's very simple. If you want to remain as you are, carry on. Nobody is going to prevent you. Religions have tried to civilize man, but they haven't succeeded. On the contrary, some religions of Christianity have killed more people than anybody on earth. Right? I don't know if you have watched this. They have had two appalling wars. And they have killed millions. Not only Stalin and Mao Zedong. These wars have destroyed. Right? And if you carry on if we carry on this way, not wanting to change, it's all right. But the question is, nature struggles to achieve light, right, in a forest, for example. And it's a struggle, right? The big, the uh, stronger kills the weaker in nature. The tiger kills the deer, lion kills the some other thing. This goes on, this is part of nature. And the question says, if it is part of nature, why should we change at all? Because it's intrinsic. Why do we say it's intrinsic? Why do we say it's there it's all right, and therefore it's all right with us too? And so let us why bother to change? It's part of us, part of nature, part of our existence, part intrinsically, this is what we are. And if that is so, that it is instinct, that is innate in us, 
which I which one questions very deeply. Then I can't change anything. But why should we accept that it's innate in us? Is it my indolence? For God's sake, leave it all alone. Is it my sense of exhaustion? Or we are supposed to be, as human beings, little more intelligent, little more reasonable, little more sane, and we are supposed to use our sanity, our intelligence, our experience to live different. To live differently. Perhaps the difference may be total and not just remain mediocre as a mediocre person, which is now being encouraged to remain human beings to be remain mediocre through their education and all the rest of won't go into it. So is it mediocrity? That is fighting us, that we hold on to, and say, well, slowly moving, it's all right. Slowly moving towards the precipice. Or if you begin to question the whole process of our existence, using common sense, Logic, reason, awareness, and one questions intuition that's rather doubtful, because it may be one's wish fulfilment, calling it in instinct or in intuition. But one has to use logic and all this, not just say, well, we need. The fourth extract is from the first talk in Sanan, 1978, titled Observing Natural Sensation. So we are inquiring seriously why human beings, this marvellous world around them, the beauty, the extraordinary nature, the quality of water, the birds, the sea and the land and the sky and the heavens above them, where they have reduced everything to to this narrow little atom, small thing, and writing enormous books about it. and how to get rid of it, what to do, practice, meditate, sacrifice, deny, starve, fast, everything to get rid of the small me. The futility of sacrifice the futility of denial of the me and identifying itself with something else, with the family, with the nation, with a belief, with a God, with um, international umpteen forms of identification, will not solve the problem. What will solve the, dissolve this thing that is so corrupting? 
that is always seeking power, position, authority, grabbing for itself everything, utilizing knowledge as a means of further success, further power, further indulgence, and so on. Now, can we factually observe not only the idea of me, the idea of the centre, but also observe the movement of the senses. the various senses, which is actually sensations. These sensations touched all the rest of it. These sensations exist, are actual. There must be. You cannot deny sensations. But when thought identifies itself with those sensations, then the structure of the centre is beginning to be formed. Kapita, right? Please, this is not intellectual observation. Just ordinary daily fact, if you observe the senses. I like one likes a particular form of food, drink, smoke, drugs, and thought then identifies itself with that particular food and says the taste of it, the smell of it, the delight of it, and with that identification, in that identification, the centre is formed. That's obvious. Now, can you observe? Please listen to this. It's very interesting if you, are, if you go into this. Can you observe the movement of the sensations, whether it be sexual, whether it be taste, hearing, or seeing? Can you observe those, the movement of those ordinary natural sensations without identifying. You know, do you understand this? Am I saying something strange or neurotic or bizarre? It's very important to understand this, because we go into this problem of identification. Where there is no identification, there is no centre. Right? It is this constant identification with my senses, with my body, with my thoughts, with thought, you follow? The whole movement of identification. Identification being attachment, inseparable attachment, and with all its associations, 
And so there is the, this identification is a movement of energy, and that energy becomes more and more and more limited, which is the centre. Right? So we are asking, can you ob- can is there an observation of the senses without any form of identif- thought identifying itself with a particular sensation? You Sensations are natural. If you have no sensations, you are utterly paralysed. Perhaps most of us are. Only in a one particular direction, sexual or other direction. But we are talking of the movement of all senses, not one particular sense. If you see the logic of it, the reason of it, that the moment thought says, thought identifies itself with a particular sensation or with all the sensations, that identification is the movement of the of building up the narrow building this vast energy into a narrow channel. Right? Have I explained? Have I made it clear? Now, ah, there's no speaker. Only in conversation between ourselves as two human beings, we are discovering this. You are discovering, not the speaker. There is no speaker. So you are discovering that any form of identification, not only with the senses, with the family, with the nation, with ideas, with conclusions, and so on, is the beginning of narrowing down this vast energy <coughs> and limiting itself, therefore resisting the vast movement of life. The fifth extract is from Krishnamurti's fourth talk at Brockwood Park in 1983, titled, What is the Origin of All Life? Now, what is then creation? What is the beginning of all this? Right? We are inquiring to that. The origin. Of, be, of the beginning of all life, not only your life, but the life of every living thing, the deep down whales, the dolphins, the little fish, the minute cells, the vast nature, the beauty of a tiger. Have you ever been seen a tiger in a, in a forest? No, of course not, you won't see it. Which really the most extraordinary animal. I won't go into it, that's not the style. I nearly touched it, wild. And the living of man, from the minutest cell to the most complex 
man. With all his inventions, with all his illusions, with his superstitions, with his quarrels, with his wars, with his arrogance, vulgarity, with his tremendous aspirations and his great depressions. What is the origin of all this? Right? Now, meditation is to come upon this. Not you come upon it, in that silence, in that quietness, in that absolute tranquility. The beginning, is there a beginning? And if there is a beginning, there must be an ending, right? A wonderful thing. That which has a cause must end, right? If I have cancer, the cause is whatever the disease, I must be operated, there will be end of it, or it will kill me. Right? Wherever there is a cause, there must be an end. That's a law, that's natural. So, is there a causation at all for the creation of man, of creation of all this way of life? You understand my question? Is there a beginning of all this? How are you going to find out? Religions have said there is God. God is the beginning and the end of all things. That's a very easy way of solving the problem. The Hindus have said it in one way, perhaps the Buddhists too, and Christianity said God. Only the fundamental belief man has been created 4,500 years ago. Right? Which seems rather absurd, because 4,500 years ago the Egyptians invented the calendar, which means they must have been extraordinarily advanced, <laughs> and so on. And if you are a fundamentalist, then you will get angry with what is being said. And I hope none of us are any kind of fundamentalist. So, what is creation? Not the painter who creates a picture, not the poet, not the man who makes something out of a marble. Those are all manifest things manifesting, right? Is there something which is not manifest? <coughs> is there something? Because it is not manifested, that thing has no beginning and no end. That which is manifested has a beginning, has an end. Right? We are the manifestations, aren't we? 
not of divine something. We are the result. We are the result of millions, thousands of years of so-called evolution, growth, development, and we also come to an end. That which is manifested can always be destroyed. But that which is not is has no time. Right? Now we are asking now of course you asking is there such thing as something beyond all time? This has been the inquiry of philosophers, scientists, and religious people to find out that which has which is beyond the measure of man, which is beyond time, because if one can find, come, discover that or see that, that is immortality, right? That's beyond death. I wonder if you understand all this. Are you following all this? Little bit at least. Try to encourage me, please. <laughs> I don't want your encouragement, but <coughs> see this man has really sought in various ways in different parts of the world with through different beliefs. Because when once discovered that or realized that, life then has no beginning and no end. Therefore, it is time, it is beyond all concepts, beyond all. Hopes you follow something immense. Now, to come back to earth, see, we never look at life as a tremendous movement. Our own life as a tremendous, wide, with great depth, a vastness. Because we've reduced our life to such shoddy little affair. And life is really the most sacred thing in existence. To kill somebody is the most irreligious horror. To get angry, to be violent with somebody. The speaker has been angry only once. And the person who, with whom he was angry has been reminding him. <laughs> so he still carry on with the anger. You understand? Really? Should we never see the world as a whole?
because we are so fragmented. We are so terribly limited, so petty. And we never have this feeling of wholeness. You follow? That the sea, this con the things of the sea, things of the earth, that nature and the skies, the universe is part of us. Not imagine you can go off some kind of fanciful imagination. And imagine we have we are the universe, then you become cuckoo. <laughs> but to break down this small self-centered interest, to have nothing of that, then from there you can move infinitely. And meditation is this, not just sitting cross-legged or standing in your head or doing whatever one does, but to have this feeling of complete wholeness and unity of life. And that can only come when there is love and compassion. The sixth extract is from the second talk in Benares, 1964, titled Communion with Nature. If you are not in communion with anything, a dead human being. If you are not communing with that river, with the birds, with the trees, with the extraordinary light in the e- of the evening, the light of the morning on the water, If you are not in communion with your neighbor, with your wife, with your children, with your husband, communion, I mean by that, the non-interference of the past, so that you look at everything fresh and new, that is the only way to be in communion. Everything, so that you die to everything of yesterday. And is it possible? One has to find this out, not how am I to do it? That's too, such an idiotic question people always ask. How am I to do this? It shows their mentality. They are not understood, but they only want to achieve a result. So I'm asking you, if you are ever in contact with anything, and with yourself, if you are ever in contact, not with your higher self and lower self and all the innumerable divisions that man has created to escape from the fact. Social action, there is, no, there is no how, there is no method, there is no system. You cannot be told. Thank God. You have to. You have to work for it. No, I'm sorry. I don't mean that word. Work. People love to work. That's one of our fantasies that we must work to achieve something. You can't work. 
When you are in a state of communion, there is no water. It is there. The perfume is there. You don't have to walk. So, ask yourself, if I may, the question to find out for yourself whether you are in communion with anything. Are you in communion with a tree? You know, have you ever been in communion with a tree? Do you know what it means? To look at a tree and to have no thought, no memory interfering with your observation, with your feeling, with your sense, with your sensibility, with your nervous state of attention. So that there is only the tree, not you who are looking at that tree. Probably you have never done it. Because to you a tree has no meaning. The beauty of a tree has no significance at all. For to you beauty means sense, sexuality. And so you have shut out the tree, the nature, the river, the people, and you are not in contact with anything, even with yourself. You are in contact with your own ideas, with your own words, like a human being in contact with ashes. You know what happens when you are in contact with ashes? You are dead. You're burnt out. So the first thing one has to realize is to find out what is the total action which will not create contradiction at any level of our existence is to be in commune. Communion with yourself. Not with the higher self, but with Atman, God, and all that tummy rot. But to be actually in contact with yourself, with your greed, envy, ambitions, brutality, deception. And then from there move. Then you will find out for you to find out, not to be told, it has no meaning. Then you will find out for yourself that there is a total action only when there is complete silence of the mind from which there is action. You know, most of our minds are noisy. Everlastingly chattering to itself, soliloquizing or chattering about something or, or trying to talk to itself to convince itself of something. It's all this moving noise. And from that noise we act. And any action born of noise produces more noise, more confusion. But if you have observed or learned, observed and learned what it means to communicate, the difficulty of communication, the non-verbalization of the mind that is that communicates and receives communication. Then you will, as life is a movement, is an action, you will move on naturally. 
freely, easily, without any effort, to that state of communion. And that state of communion you will find if you, got, if you inquire more deeply is not only a communion with the nature, with with world, with, with everything about you, but also in communion with yourself. To be in communion with yourself means complete silence so that the mind can be silently in communion with itself about everything. And from there, there is a total act. It's only out of emptiness there is action which is total and creative the final extract this week is from a direct recording by Krishnamurti in 1983, titled Will We Ever Live on This Beautiful Earth Peacefully? One saw a bird die, shot by a man. He was flying with a rhythmic beat and beautifully, with such freedom and lack of fear. And the gun shattered him. He fell to the earth, dead, and all the life had gone out of it. A dog fetched it, and the man had collected other birds, dead birds. And he was chattering with his friend, and seemed so utterly indifferent. All that he had was concerned with, he had brought down so many birds. And it was over as far as he was concerned. They are killing all over the world. Those marvelous, rather great animals of the sea, the whales, they are killed by the million. The tiger and all the other animals are now becoming endangered species. Man is the only animal that is to be dreaded. Some time ago, staying with a friend, high in the hills, a man came and told the host that a tiger had killed last night a cow. And would we like to see, see the tiger that evening. He could arrange it by building a platform and a tree and tying a goat. And the bleat of the, of the small animal would attract the tiger and we could see it. We both refused to satisfy cruelly our curiosity. But later on that day, the host suggested that we get the car and go into the forest to see the tiger if we could. And so, towards the evening, we got into the car, into an open car, with a chauffeur driving, and we went into the forest for several miles deep into the woods. Of course we saw nothing, but it was getting quite dark and the headlights were on. As we turned round a bend, there it was, sitting right in the middle of the road, waiting to receive us. It was a very large animal, beautifully marked, and its eyes, caught by the headlights, were bright. And he came growling towards the car 
And as it passed by, just few inches from my hand, the host said, Don't touch it, it's too dangerous. Be quick, or it's faster than your hand. But you could feel the dynamic energy of that animal, its vitality. It's a great dynamo of energy. And as it passed by, one felt an enormous attraction towards it. And it just disappeared into the woods. Apparently my friend had seen many tigers and had helped long ago in his youth to kill one. And ever since then he has been regretting the terrible act. And cruelty in every form is now spreading in the world. Man has never been so bestial, cruel, that probably he is now so violent. At least the churches and the, and the priests of the world have talked about peace on earth, from the Christian highest hierarchy. And the poor village priest has talked about living a good life, not hurting, not killing a thing, especially among the Buddhists and the Hindus. They said, especially among certain group of people in India, don't kill even the fly. Don't kill anything. For next life, you'll pay for it. That's a rather crudely put, but the intention not to kill and not to hurt another human being. Some of them maintained and sustained this spirit, but killing was was going on and is going on. The dog kills so quickly the rabbit, or the man shoots another. These marvelous machines, and he's perhaps he is himself shot by another. And this has been going on for a millennia upon millennia. Some treat it as a sport. Others kill out of hatred, anger, jealousy. Others kill an organized murder of the various nations with their arms. And one wonders if man would ever live on this beautiful earth peacefully, never killing a little thing, or being killed or killing another to live peacefully, with some dignity and love with his heart. In this part of the world, so-called West, Christians have killed more, perhaps, than anyone else. And they're always talking about peace, peace on, in the, on this earth. But to have peace, one must live peacefully. And that seems to utterly impossible. The arguments for and against war, the arguments that man has always been a killer and he will always remain so. And those who maintain that he can bring about a change in himself and not kill. This is a very old story. I'm sure there were some among the Mongols, the Genghis Khan army people, who were reluctant to kill. And this endless butchering man has become a habit, an accepted formula, in spite of all the religions. And watching the other day, a red-tailed hawk, 
high in the heavens, circling effortlessly without a beat of the wing, just for the fun of flying, just to be sustained by the, by the air currents. And it was joined by another, and they were going, they were flying together for quite a while. There were marvelous creatures in that blue sky. And to hurt them in any way is a crime against heaven. Of course there is no heaven. Man has invented that heaven out of his hope, for his life has become a hell, an endless conflict, from birth to death. Coming and going, making money, walking endlessly, labouring. And this life has become a turmoil, a travail of endless striving. One wonders if man, a human being, will ever live on this earth peacefully. Conflict has been the way of his life, within the skin and outside the skin, in the area of the psyche and the society which that psyche has created. Probably love has totally disappeared from this world. Love implies generosity, care, not to hurt another, not to put, to make another feel guilty, to be gentle, courteous, and behave in such a manner that your words and thoughts are born out of compassion. Of course, you cannot be compassionate if you belong to any organized religious institutions, large, powerful, traditional, dogmatic, and healthy and insist on faith. There must be freedom to love. That love is not pleasure, desire, a remembrance of things that have gone. Love is not the opposite, jealousy, hate and anger. All this may sound rather utopian, idealistic, something that man can only aspire to. And if you accept that, then you will go on killing. Love is as real, as strong as death. There is nothing to do with imagination and sentimental romanticism. And naturally it has nothing to do with power, position, prestige. which is as still as the waters of the sea, and as powerful as the sea. It's like the waters of a great river, flowing endlessly, without a beginning or an end. But the man who kills the baby sea, or the great whale, is concerned with his livelihood. He would say, I live by that. That's my trade. He's totally concerned with, with that something which is which we call love. He probably loves his family, or he thinks he loves his family, and he isn't concerned very much. How he gains his livelihood. It's a pity human beings haven't gone gone about seeking the right means of livelihood. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why man lives in a fragmentary life. Nobody seems to love what he's doing, except for perhaps a few, but that's not important. Or if one lived with the métier that one loves, it may begin to understand 
и холнес от мат. We are broken up life into frameworks, business world, the artistic world, the scientific world, and the political world, the religious world. We seem to think they're all separate and to be kept separate. And so we become hypocritical, doing something in the business world, ugly, corrupt, And coming home to live with one's family peacefully, that breeds hypocrisy, double standard of life. It's really a marvelous earth. And that bird sitting on the tallest tree has been doing every morning and looking over the world. Watching for a bigger bird, a bird that might kill it. Watching the clouds, the passing shadows, and the great spread of this rich earth. These rivers, forests, and all the men that work from morning till night. If one thinks at all in the psychological world, is to be full of sorrow. One wonders too if man will ever change. Or only the few, the very, very few. Then what is the relationship of the few to the many? Or What is the relationship of the many to the few? The many have no relationship to the few. The few do have a relationship. And sitting on that rock, looking down into the valley, a lizard beside you, one dare move lest the lizard be disturbed. Of frightened. And the lizard too is watching. And so the world goes on. Inventing gods, following the hierarchy of God's representative. And all the sham and the shame of illusions will probably go on. The thousand problems getting more and more complex and intricate. Only the intelligence of love and compassion can solve all problems of love. That intelligence is the only fact, instrument that can never be, never become dull.